Chapter Twenty Two of the Lonely Warrior by Claude C. Washburn. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. In nineteen ten, Harriet Price, Ames's mother and widow of John Price, who had been head of the Price Tractor and Motor Company, built a new house. In nineteen twelve, she died, and the mansion, together with many other good things, among them a controlling interest in the Tractor Company passed to Ames, the only child. The house, which was an immense square building of yellow stone in the Italian Renaissance style, occupied with its grounds an entire block in the best section of the fashionable boulevard. Stacy had always rather liked the exterior, though it was not Parkins and May, but a Chicago firm of architects who had built the house. It was severe, commanding, less inharmonious in Vernon than most anachronisms, and the four great chimneys were really fine. Never having cared for the prices, Stacy had seen the interior but once, at a large housewarming affair, given in the winter of 1910, to which he had gone out of curiosity. It had struck him then, as Chicago decorator's stuff, which it was, proper, faultlessly in period, quite without character he remembered perfectly the dreariness of his impression. So now, when he entered the vast hall, his first glimpse of it made him aware of change. "'Mr. Carroll, sir?' asked the English butler. "'Will you go upstairs, please? Mrs. Price is expecting you there, sir.' "'Yes,' said Stacy. "'Half a minute.' He walked quickly across the hall, and stood for a moment at the entrance to the great drawing-room on the left. As he looked in, he smiled, half appreciatively, half ironically. Change? Well, rather. To begin with, Marion, it was Marion, of course, had swept away pretty much everything that had been in that room when Stacy had first seen it. But, even supposing the discarded furniture and pictures to have been sold, he hardly thought the present relative bareness had saved Dame's money. That long table, the Florentine chest, and the copy of a relief in marble with touches of blue and gold. Desiderio da Settignano? If it was a copy, hm. He turned back. All right, he said to the butler, I'll go up. As he mounted the broad stone stairway, the man following, his glance rested on a tapestry, a Medici tapestry, if he knew anything about it. Phew, he thought but his eyes were just a little hard now. Marion would take and take, and give nothing. All the same, what did she get from it? Again, he felt suddenly unreasoningly sorry for her. The butler conducted Stacy to the south end of the upper hall, tapped perfunctorily at a door, opened it, and Stacy went in. The room he entered was a small sitting-room, Marion's own, most certainly, English in feeling, crowded with a great many things. Or, rather, no, on second thought, Stacy knew it well. It was like what pleasant English people did sometimes to their smallest, best-loved room in a Tuscan villa. The French windows were wide open, but the heavy wooden shutters were closed to shut out the heat, so that only a soft summer air entered, with perfumes from the garden outside. There was a kind of radiant greenish twilight in the room. No one was there, though a flame burned beneath a silver kettle. 
two fragile cups stood ready, and a tea-wagon with bread and butter and cake was drawn up near the table. After perhaps a minute, Marian entered through another door. She was wearing a simple dress of a pearl-gray color, short, as the fashion was, and with a silver cord about the waist. She looked as Greek as anyone or anything modern could look, and Stacy drew in his breath sharply with admiration of her beauty. Nevertheless, as he shook hands with her, and replied to her apparently natural greeting, he was wary. All this delightful readiness for his visit, the coziness, the shining tea-things, Marian herself. "'I mistrust the Greeks and the gifts they bring,' he said to himself suddenly, and smiled, finding the quotation apt, Marian looking as she did. But he kept it to himself. Marian sat down at the table, but remained for a moment gracefully idle, smiling at him before beginning to make the tea. "'You see all my preparations, Stacy,' she said lightly. "'You see what an event it is when you come. Aren't you flattered?' "'You know I am,' he returned, almost disarmed now by her remark. And this was true, for Stacy was genuinely anxious to be friends with Marian. After all, at bottom, he was a simple person. That is, he was complex only on his receptive side. He could perceive, quite without effort, the subtlest, most tangled, personal relationships all about him, whether or not he was himself involved in them. He had always been able to do this. But the real Stacy Carroll, in the center of this rich, shimmering web, remained simple. The impulses on which he acted were simple, almost boyish, sometimes. Marion and Stacy were both silent while she measured out the tea and poured the hot water. Gazing at her so closely, he noted that she was very thin. Her fine pointed face was almost sharp, and her bare arms, lifted prettily to the silver urn, were too slender. Stacy was sorry, but considering himself questioningly, he recognized that this half-pity for Marion, together with an artist's admiration of her loveliness, was all that he felt for her now, absolutely all. No touch of love remained, and Stacy was immensely relieved. "'It has to brew seven minutes,' said Marian, glancing at her tiny turquoise-encrusted wrist-watch, then leaning back in a corner of her chair and resting her long, slim hands on one arm of it. "'Most people treat tea-making so clumsily,' Stacy remarked. "'You make it an art.' just as you do with all the other daily things. They acquire distinction. That's nice. Thanks, she said idly, but it's only that it tastes better if it's made right, you know. And isn't that something? Marion, he added, noting that her fingers were quite bare, don't you wear your rings any more? She glanced down at her hands. No, she said, I don't like them, and they slip off. "'You mustn't let yourself get so thin,' he returned solicitously. She gave him a quick, hard smile. "'Of course not. I must keep myself a handsome objet de art, mustn't I? I remember all about the Parthenon, Stacy.' "'No, no,' he answered, discouraged, getting a glimpse of her antagonism. "'I didn't mean that. I only meant that you must stay well. What a rotter you must think me, to take my remark like that.' 
As far as that goes, you're more beautiful at present than I've ever seen you, he added simply. But he saw her bite her lip after her pettish outburst, and he felt lost, baffled. To save him, he could not make out what she was after, whether she regretted her spiteful little attack because it was not in line with a carefully prepared program, or because she merely wanted to be friendly and hadn't meant to grow petulant. His mind played restlessly over the whole situation and could make nothing of it. "'Yes, that was rather nasty of me, I admit,' said Marion after a moment. It was some little time before she could again conquer his wariness, but she did so at last. There is a smooth disarming intimacy about the tea-hour. The ceremony of tea itself is so fine, it is elegant, aloof and gracious. It ministers to taste, yet not to appetite. People are not there to chew and be nourished. And then the hour itself is lovable, the sun's rays growing level, dust in the air turned golden, a hush perceptible even through the city's noise. Stacy surrendered to the atmosphere of intimacy. He drank the fragrant china tea and talked without restraint of a number of things. Perhaps, he thought, he and Marion might still be friends. He had treated her abominably and was sorry for it now that he understood her better, though she, he admitted, understood him better than he her. They could be silent, too. Pauses were not awkward. "'You gather so much fineness together, Marion,' he remarked once. "'All that you touch becomes fine, turns to gold.' He ceased abruptly. That was the wrong illusion, he thought, annoyed at his clumsiness. But she did not seem to mind it. "'You're really quite kindly toward me, aren't you, Stacy?' she remarked, with just a hint of irony in her voice, but smiling pleasantly. Why shouldn't I be? No reason at all, of course, she said prettily, making him a mocking little bow. Have some more tea. He held out his cup, watched her fill it, then set it down again, all mechanically. People get in states of mind for no particular reason, he said vaguely, feeling apologetic, yet not wanting to go into the matter, as much on her account as on his. Yes, and then into others. Tell me, do you feel kindly toward everybody now? Oh, I shouldn't go so far as to claim that, he replied uncomfortably. It went against his whole nature to talk about himself to Marion, yet he felt he owed her some sort of confession. So he went on haltingly. I used to get awfully worked up about a lot of things, about people being greedy, for instance. I don't mean any one person, everybody, whole human race. But then he concluded diffidently. It struck me that they weren't hateful on account of it, but only pathetic, since their greed never brought them happiness. Never. Marion's face was half turned away from him, and she was resting her chin in her cupped hand, an old familiar pose, so that he could not see her expression. But all at once she dropped her hand, lay back in her chair, and laughed musically, startling him. "'Oh, Stacy, you're so funny!' she exclaimed. I've told you that before, but I think, she added, not laughing now, smiling at him deliberately, that I liked you better in your fierce, world-defying, Byronic stage, when you were so dramatic, than now in this Christ-like phase. He winced sharply. She had really hurt him there. He despised people who went sweetly through the world doing good to others, 
which was what she meant. Stacy flushed hotly, but he caught a fleeting gleam of triumph in Marion's eyes, and at this his anger and most of his shame left him, and he only felt drearily that it was no use. She hated him and had got him there on purpose to take this sort of small revenge. It was true that she had led him on and stabbed just when he had generously disarmed. She had not played fair. But after all, why should she? She baffled him today, though. He thought that now he was in for it, that she would try to lead him into some further trap. Instead, she grew suddenly listless, talked indifferently of casual things, or, again, talked rapidly and artificially. She made no more onslaughts, was rather kind to him than otherwise, ringing for the butler to bring up a brand of cigarettes of which she knew Stacy was fond. But he felt her to be immensely sophisticated, with no girlishness remaining. Leaning back in her chair, she had the weary perfection of something finished, complete and soulless. There was no trace left in her of the elfish charm for which he had once loved her idolatrously nor had there been at the very beginning of the afternoon, when she had seemed fresh and spontaneous. She went down to the door with him when he left her, but she shook hands almost apathetically. He puzzled over it as he walked homeward. He could not understand what Marion had been about. Surely she had not summoned him to give him that one thrust. She was too clever not to have been able to do more than that if revenge was what she had been after. It did not occur to him that Marion might simply have been intolerably bored, and have wanted him as some kind of relief, to cajole or stab as the mood struck her. What Stacy did feel was that it was restful to go back to Catherine and his father from so much futile complexity. Not that they were so limpid either, come to think about it. Catherine especially wasn't, but they were direct. The interview left him feeling a little sore, not altogether, though partly, because he had been wounded in his self-esteem. But this did not last. The matter was too trivial to annoy him for long. He forgot all about it in his work. It was just two weeks later, at about four in the afternoon, when the door of Stacy's office was thrown open, and Ames Price strode in. Stacy's first feeling was one of surprise and repressed amusement for he had not seen Ames since the evening of the outrageous jest played on him at the roadhouse. Stacy's second emotion, following immediately, was a sick, comprehending horror. It was as though he had known everything beforehand in a dream that he had forgotten, and that had fought in vain to break loose and summon him. Ames's heavy face was set, in a struggle for self-control, and his voice when he spoke was thick and difficult. "'Come with me, Carol,' he stammered. Stacy had already sprung to his feet. He was paler than Ames. "'Yes,' he said, and snatched up his hat. The other clenched his fists. "'You mean to say you know already? Damn you! Someone's told you!' "'No,' said Stacy dully. "'No. Come on.' Slowly, through the office. No fuss. Got to smile. Latimer said so. It was as though Ames were reciting a ritual. Together they went down in the elevator and out of the building. It was August, but the car that Ames had brought was a closed car. Latimer again, thought Stacy, with a touch of loathing beneath the horror that filled his mind. They set off swiftly. It's Marion, 
said Ames. She shot herself this morning, dying. She asks for you. He looked at Stacy, dully rather than with hatred. It was this, of course, or something like it, Stacy knew already. But to hear it in words was abominable. A chill ran over his body. He felt physically nauseated. He set his teeth. In much pain? he muttered. No. The car drove up beneath the porte-cochere of the Price's house, and the two men got out. They went upstairs together silently. In Marion's exquisite boudoir stood a black group of people. Stacy recognized none of them at first, only caught a feeling of their heavy incongruity in that place. Then he saw that Mr. Latimer was one, and that another was a doctor whom he knew. There was a nurse also. From somewhere Mrs. Latimer appeared, and Stacy perceived that she was a haggard old woman. A look of relief softened her eyes, a very little, at sight of him. "'She wants to see you, Stacy,' Mrs. Latimer murmured. "'I'll speak to the doctor outside,' and she went through a door. Presently she returned with the doctor. "'You can go in,' he said. Stacy pulled him aside a little way. "'It won't do any harm?' he demanded hoarsely. "'No, no harm. Better to let her have her way.' There's nothing to be done. The bullet missed her heart and penetrated the lung instead. The wound is dressed. Be as calm as you can. There's no hope? Not the faintest. She is... Well, there's no hope, replied the doctor, rather kindly. Just a minute, then, said Stacy. He leaned against a wall and struggled for composure. Then he wiped his forehead with his handkerchief. All right he said, and went through the door with the doctor and Marion's mother. The room beyond was hushed, cool and darkened. Mrs. Latimer led Stacy to the bedside, then withdrew to a distant corner of the room, and stood there, motionless, with the nurse and the doctor. When he looked that way, he could see them like dim figures in the background of some faded Venetian picture. "'Is that Stacy?' asked a thin voice. "'Yes,' he murmured, and knelt by the bed. Marion was propped up within it, and her face, that was turned sideways toward him on the pillows, was like alabaster, thin, veined, and bloodless, but her beauty was unmarred, heightened even, like a statue of her beauty. The only color anywhere was in her bright hair that was spread about the pillow. "'I'm glad you've come,' she said. "'Take my hand.' He did so gently. Her voice was scarcely more than a musical murmur, and between phrases she gasped for breath. "'Don't talk,' he begged. "'Let me talk to you, Marion.' "'No,' she said. "'I must talk to you, Stacy. Not much, only a little.' She paused, panting. Stacy was wrenched with pain. This was unbearable. His forehead was damp with sweat. I wanted to tell you, she went on, almost inaudibly, oh, lots of things, not to worry, for one, it's just as well, only isn't it like me, she said with a faint smile, to fail, even in this? Marion, please, he muttered, tightening his hold on her hand for an instant. 
It was the pathos of her frail attempt at cynicism that shook him. For now she no longer looked the weary, perfect, grown-up woman. She seemed a little girl. To watch her die was like watching a child die, or a dream. "'I hurt you, Stacy. I didn't mean to,' she said softly, and managed to stroke his hand, ever so faintly. It was, perhaps, the first time he had found tenderness in her. He set his teeth hard. "'I must say what I have to, quickly,' she went on. "'You are not to blame yourself, Stacy. You have nothing to do with it.' She paused for a moment, struggling for breath. "'I was all wrong, twisted. You were right. You couldn't love me, or I you, not even you. I could not bear life any longer having made such a mess of it. She closed her eyes weakly, and he thought that she slept or had died. But presently they fluttered open again. I'm sorry, she murmured, that I said what I did to you the other day. It was not true, and I did not mean it, even then. Oh, he cried in a choked voice, don't, Marion. She held his fingers close. Poor Stacy, she whispered. It's not your fault. Again she paused, and after a moment an elfish smile stirred her lips. Do I look a fright? she asked. No. Lovely. Well, that's good, she murmured with the ghost of a laugh. Parthenon. They were both silent for a while. Now I'm sleepy. You may go. But first kiss me, Stacy dear. He bent over and touched her white cheek with his lips, then rose slowly to his feet and made his way back unsteadily to the others. I don't know, he muttered hoarsely to the doctor. You'd better feel her pulse. The doctor went quickly to the bed, then after a moment returned. Just the same, only a little weaker. She's asleep, he whispered. Stacy looked at Mrs. Latimer. I'll go then. You'll keep me informed. By phone, he pleaded. She nodded, taking his hand for an instant. He returned to the other room dizzily. She's sleeping just now, he said to Marion's husband. Will you have your car take me home? They went out into the hall together. Stacy stumbled, and Ames grasped his arm and held it. But Mr. Latimer had followed them. Stacy, he said, just a moment. Stacy turned mechanically to stare at him. He had only been vaguely aware of the man's presence. It is perhaps unnecessary for me to warn you to say nothing of this, said Marion's father stonily. It must be kept out of the papers. It was just what Stacy needed. He straightened up, anger rushing through him like a hot flood. "'Go to hell,' he said, then swung about and walked quickly and firmly downstairs, with Ames following. At the door of the car the two men gazed at each other helplessly. There was no antagonism between them now. In some odd way they were even united. "'I'm glad you said that to Latimer,' Ames remarked dully. So was Stacy glad. 
His anger was all that sustained him on the ride home, for he felt that everything was Mr. Latimer's fault. All the worst of Marion he had given her. Almost he had pointed the revolver. End of chapter 22